we're gonna finish something, Lord willing, today that we, we started off a number of weeks ago and so we're in the book of James and we're in the last two verses. Before we look at that, you've probably noticed if you've paid attention at all in the last five years, it's been widespread throughout the US and throughout the world for the, the words, the, the publicity for us as a world that we need to accept people based upon their own perceived view of themselves. Transgender, gender identity or gender expression are all the terms that are used and we're told that it's up to the individual and any attempt to correct this behavior is deemed hateful or hurtful. But then we as Christians go back to the Bible and we come away with the truth of how God made each and every one of us. And so what do we do with that? Well, I guess we could yell and scream and post hateful things on Facebook, although I wouldn't encourage that. But as a society, how, how will a society ever correct its course once it starts down a road like this? Is correction even possible? Correction. That's a word most people do not like to hear, especially when it's applied to themselves. We don't like to be corrected. We like to think of ourselves as people who don't need correction. We like to think of ourselves as mature, wise, able to decide without help how to do the right things and choose the right and correct paths. We don't like the, the idea that someone would come and tell us we're going the wrong way. That's why men never stop to ask for directions. Consequently, the grace of correction appears almost completely lost in our society. Politicians lie and they're not corrected. School boards choose harmful policies and they're not corrected. Many parents fail to correct their kids. They may punish their children, but punishment isn't correction. It's possible today for a child to be born, grow well into their late adulthood, and never experience a healthy dose of correction. They're sometimes called millennials. And every other generation before, just so you know. So don't misunderstand me. We're, We've all seen parents scold their kids, barking out orders, but that's not correction. You've also seen parents try to bribe their kids, but that's not correction either. Correction involves redirection. It involves going after and, and instructing them. It, it is seen as do not do this, but do that. Or if you do it that way, there'll be tragic results, but if you follow this, there'll lead to positive results. So I asked, when was the last time you had someone genuinely correct you by showing you how your direction is wrong and then showing you the right way. Furthermore, when was the last time you humbly and joyfully received that such correction? Somehow we've come to a conclusion that any correction should be avoided at all costs. If we are corrected, we feel exposed, caught, wrong, and we'd much rather be thought of in better terms than actually admit that we're exposed, caught, wrong, and in need of correction. What do you think, though, happens in a culture when everyone goes from childhood to adulthood never giving nor receiving correction? What do you suppose its laws and thinking look like? You don't have to wonder, just open your eyes. Read the newspaper, turn on the television. What do you think a church looks like where members are unwilling to gently and lovingly go after other members with correction? Or other members who are unwilling to receive any correction? Have you been reading the book of James? He gives a good picture of this. And spiritual correction is a lost discipline in the church. If the church is in a place where people are corrected in love and godliness, how will the society ever change? What hope is there for an unbelieving, perishing world if not even the people of God are humble enough to receive correction? What hope is there for the, the Pacific Northwest if Christians and churches are not marked by humility and being willing to admit they're wrong and accept correction. 
And James in this book has been laboring to teach us that faith in God results in action towards one another and towards the world. And when we live in this world, we will experience hurt and pain and suffering. And what happens more times than we'd like to admit is that when we sin against one another, we, we then want to build up walls to protect ourselves from ever being hurt again. Or we fight and quarrel with one another because we don't get what we want. Or we lash out to one another with our words and we tear down the very ones, James says, who were made in the image of God. We truly live in a broken world and when things don't get any better from the vantage point, James says at the end, we sometimes bolt. We leave. Sometimes we leave the church. All the time we leave the anchor of the gospel and sometimes we stay in the church, but we hide, never growing. And what's the answer to this? What's, what's God's answer to us in the book of James? The answer is the church. Not the building. No, the church, the people that make up the church family. That's the answer that James gives us. And in the mor this morning, the, the final charge for God's church is that we should be known as those who rescue those that wander. We should be the ones who take up the mantle of gentle and loving correction. This is the call for us as believers. This is the point of the passage this morning. And this is so important that James has decided to end the book on this note. So let's dive in and look at these two verses James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What we do is ultimately tied up to what we believe. In our passage this morning, James ties together those two thoughts. These two verses are a summons to action for us. These two verses speak to two types of people, and that's the outline for this morning that you should have received as you came in. There are two types of people here, and the thing is, if you're sitting here wondering which one you are, you, you'll float between the two of these during your time on earth. You're either the wanderer or you're the rescuer. And everyone in here are those two positions right now this morning. No one's exempt. You're either here this morning as a wanderer or you're a rescuer. You can't pull yourself out. So we need to listen closely and apply God's word to our hearts as we begin. So as we launch into these two verses, I wanna pray and ask God to help. And so I would encourage you, if you would, please pray for me and I'll pray for you. Well, God, we, we have moved from proclaiming your worth now to listening to your word. And I ask that you would unplug our ears, that you would tenderize our hearts and open our eyes. We want to be changed from being with you. We want to be made more like you because you work and in every aspect of your person or you, you are everything that we want to be like. That we would be full of love and purity and holiness and grace and faithfulness and zeal and servanthood and promise keeping and joy and goodness and everything that is commendable and good. And make us imitators of God as beloved children. And let us walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We ask that you would do all of this for the fame of Jesus Christ that would spread across the globe. Amen. The first point this morning in your outline is the wanderer. James says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He begins as a wandering, as a closing verses. My brothers, this is meant that James is talking to professing believers. They're part of the church. Now, before we walk the path to understand what a wanderer is, I, I need to hopefully help you understand how it's possible for people, professing believers, to walk away, to wander away from God and from the church. And to do this, I wanna take you to another passage. I wanna take you to the book of Luke. 
So turn with me. If you're using a Bible in the, in the chairs, it's page 812-812, Luke chapter 8. And in this is the parable of the sower. Because I believe this, this parable that Jesus gives us gives us some handles to understand what James is going to talk about in these two verses in James 5. So I want to walk through these different sections of the parable and I'm encouraged strongly, and so I'm going to use the teaching from R. Kent Hughes and his excellent commentary of James as my guide through this, but these four different hearts that Jesus shows us in Luke chapter 8. If you look at Luke chapter 8, verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And so the, the first one that he talks about, this first heart, is a hard heart. The fields in, in Palestine were, were long, narrow strips divided by footpaths that would become hard as a rock from the combination of some moisture, but the constant pounding of the feet in the path. And with the sun, it was soon to be like stone. It was hard. And so when the farmer, God the Holy Spirit, sows the seed, God's word, which is living and pregnant with life, on the path, which is the human heart, it is trampled on, and then the birds come and eat up the seeds. And so what is Jesus talking about here? We jump down to verse 12. He gives the explanation. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. These are these hearts, these impenetrable hearts and minds that are a fog of disbelief and Satan's minions come in and snatch the seed of the gospel away from the hardened hearts before it has an opportunity to, to germinate and to grow. So first is the hard heart. Second is the shallow heart. Palestine is also covered with a, a bedrock and a thin coat of soil, which enhances the sprouting of new seed because the bedrock is quickly warmed by the sun. But the, the fresh sprouts quickly and then dies because of the shallow soil. It doesn't allow them to grow deep. So Jesus says there in verse 6 of Luke 8, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And Jesus makes the application now for the shallow heart here in verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And this, I believe, is the regular occurrence we see with people in the church, especially with kids who excitedly want to trust in Jesus for salvation during a, a children's program. And nothing is greener than a new sprout. And they may even seem healthy than other seed, but the issue with the shallow heart is that they have no depth, Jesus says. They have no root. And that's why it's crucial that, it, that we are clear in our explanation of the gospel to people and to kids. So teachers and parents, and again, I want to encourage you to walk through the gospel with those four points that I've talked about multiple times, and I'll go through it again, because we need the reminder God, man, Christ response. And we, we shouldn't settle for just easy believism with our kids. We need to keep pressing into their hearts the gospel each and every week. Who God is. He's holy, that he's just, that he's righteous. Our kids need to hear this. And they need to know about themselves. And when the kid says in your Sunday school program, why are you a Christian? Well, because my dad's the pastor. You need to shut that down. It happened last week. It was my kid. <laughs> you walk through who God is, and then you walk through who, who man is, who this little child that looks so innocent and loving, and yet they sin against the holy God. And don't stop there, right? God, man, Christ. What has Christ done? Christ has come to redeem them, to buy them back, to pay for their sins. And then you walk through, how do you respond? You, you can't just hear the gospel and do nothing with it. We all have to respond. And so it's vital for us as parents and as for teachers here to understand this and to preach this every single week. Don't grow tired of the gospel. It needs to be every single week. And trust me, these kids can handle the conversations. Don't underestimate the ability of our kids to process and understand and ask questions to these, these points of the gospel. 
And Jesus' exposition of the shallow heart is a warning to us all. It's a warning to you this morning. Has the word of God truly taken root in your heart? Are you growing? Or is there a, a spurt of growth and then nothing? Do you understand the gospel? Can you share the gospel? We asked that in our membership interviews. Can you share the gospel with me? And it's not, we're not looking for every ideal. We want to know, do you know the gospel? God, man, Christ responds. Can you share that? Can you walk people through the gospel? Friends, you need to know the gospel. Especially if you count yourself a Christian, you need to be able to, to share this gospel. To walk someone through and to understand it. Well, that's the shallow heart. The third one in, in Luke's gospel is the infested heart. And that's in verse 7 in Luke 8. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and, and choked it. And some of the seeds fell on thorn-infested soil that strangles the promising of, of beginning new life. And Jesus says and then in the result in verse 14, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. You see the trio of murderers here in this verse? Their cares and riches and pleasures. All of these things, Jesus says, strangle. They all talk about materialism and the power it has over life. And I see this in the church. Those that, that come in and come out. And we joke about it, you know. Attendance might be low today because it's nice weather out. I struggle with that come and be a part of a church that fits with their current lifestyle. They might need to, to work, or more common in the Pacific Northwest, they need to relax. And so they'll come when they're able or when they desire, but when it doesn't, because they're so worried about riches or relaxation with friends, and, and they might even call themselves Christians, but there isn't any identifiable fruit. They just focus on their possessions. And I'm not saying... You shouldn't have vacations, so don't send me angry emails later. We can take vacations and rest for the glory of God. When you come and you're involved in a church, a handful of times of the year, it begins to wonder, are you that third heart? As other things come and snatched away, it's understanding of what the gospel is. Well, the fourth, the last, is the fertile heart, and that's in verse 8. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And then Jesus explains the verse in verse 15. And as for that and good soil, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Friends, true believers bear fruit. How do you know? Well, that's a great question. It really is. How do you know if you're a true believer? Can I show you from God's word? Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Give you some insight for your soul. Galatians chapter 5. I told you I'd take you around a few places. Galatians chapter 5. It's on page 916 if you're using the Bible as provided. There's two people here that, that Paul writes about in Galatians 5, starting in verse 19. First he talks about the flesh and then the spirit. So verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and, and these things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, is your life known for, displayed of hostility towards others, the sexual immorality, seeking to pick fights with people, your life dominated by jealousy or anger or selfish ambition. See, these, these are listed here as a warning to us. This is what the flesh does, what the flesh wants. They're opposite to God. And how do I know that? Because he continues in verse 22, because he gives us the other side of the coin. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, I need to say this isn't a, a pass-fail test, meaning that we need to show all of these fruit or show all of these works of the flesh. If that is the case, we all fail. 
The point of these fruit descriptions is that they should give us some insight into our lives and how God is working. Because when these fruit are in full bloom, they will produce an outward fruit that James has been laboring to teach us in the chapters of this book. We would see the fruit in the life of of believers. So how does this all tie in? You need to recognize that all four hearts that, that Jesus talks about in Luke 8, all of those four hearts are all present in the church. The church has those three kinds of unregenerate hearts presently, right now, right here. The hard heart, the shallow heart, the infested heart. And also has the fourth, the, the fertile heart, the faithful heart. And, and don't under, misunderstand their, their levels and degrees of, of faithfulness and, and, and fruitful lives, but fertile hearts wrestle with hardness and shallowness and infestation, but God's word is rooted deeply, and there is ongoing fruit. Now, why did I spend almost 15 minutes, 20, because James is going to talk about this. He's going to give us a picture now, and James is the champion in the New Testament when it comes to teaching about the practicality of faith in the Christian life. Faith according to James, produces works that affect how people then spend their money and and how they relate to poor in the world. And faith shows itself in the use of our whole body, especially the tongue. And James is gonna talk to us this morning in James chapter five, so we'll turn right back to James, and I believe we're gonna stay here. Just have to wait and see. James chapter five, and he's gonna teach us about apostasy this morning. And we need to understand that people can come into church and they can say all the right things and share even a believable testimony and yet they may not be truly saved. Or they may be saved. And as James says, they wander away from the truth for a time. Ultimately, we don't know. And God doesn't give us that information. God just encourages us to go after. And as I said earlier, James closes this letter with this warning because we, we need a call to action based upon what we've heard now for these five chapters. There are those in the church who will leave. There's those that will wander away. And if they're truly a believer, if they are a professor and a possessor, the word of God says they will persevere to the end. James chapter five, he says there in verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The Greek word for wander is plano, which we get the word planet, a wander on their own. They have detached from the truth. They've stopped listening to the word of the gospel. As Paul writes to Timothy, they have turned away from listening to the truth and have wandered off into myths. It's a willful action. It's a veering off course on purpose. It's a a picture of someone who who carelessly is going off on a different path to look for their own way. And how do you know if you're a wanderer, you look at the place where you end up. And James says in verse 20, a multitude of sins. James sees men and women who have disconnected their lives from others, from the church, and they wander away to desolation. Now, the wandering could be for two reasons, but they're actually usually connected. I mentioned that at the beginning. What you believe affects how you live. So they may wander from correct doctrine, which affects then how they live. And don't be fooled, friends. You, everyone here, are a theologian. You are a theologian. You live according to a set of doctrine. The question is, where do you get your doctrine? They, see, these, these might leave the fellowship of the church because of big, weighty matters, or it could be that they're following the teachings of those false teachers of the day. Perhaps leaving to follow the prosperity teaching, which dulls the gospel until it cannot be seen or heard. Or following the teachings of Joseph Smith, or Amy Semple McPherson, 
or even those that have their faces plastered on books that are best-selling. Perhaps, though, and maybe not as noticeable, are those that have such doctrinal precision from their vantage point that they won't even allow themselves to even attend church and most definitely not become a member. And pride that causes people to starve their own soul. One of the most tragic stories that I read years ago and was reminded of this week in church history is of that of, of our theologian A.W. Pink. Perhaps you've been blessed with a number of his books. They are a blessing. But you know that years after publishing those books, that he became so convinced that no church was correct in their doctrine that he refused to attend any church. And he and his wife stayed home. No church could line up, even though within minutes of his home was a solid gospel preaching church that he could identify with. They weren't right, and so he wouldn't attend. Friends, this isn't healthy for a Christian. We are made to live in community, to build relationships with other people, to open ourselves up with other people. And if you're here and you're looking for a church, can I just warn you, you will not find a perfect church. And if you ever do find a perfect church, you will ruin it as soon as you attend. And if you're here thinking that we are a perfect church, we're not. We are far from that. Instead, I hope we're sinners looking to follow the Savior. So we most definitely need to know our Bible doctrine, but that cannot cause us to miss the fellowship with other believers. But also, correct doctrine cannot be separated from correct behavior for the Christian. To wander from biblical truth is to wander from true life. They're connected. R. Kent Hughes says, moral de deviation in life is always connected to a doctrinal aberration. Another commentator said, no man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ and may have had emotional, religious experiences. However, he is not truly converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord, Savior, and Master. Anything less is worldly. It's sinful double-mindedness that we saw in James. And what James is warning us of here is apostasy, which comes from the Greek word of defection. They have deserted the gospel, the church, and ultimately allegiance to their Lord in their life. And I wonder what, what sins can stalk a congregation like this. Pride, anger that won't allow you to really connect with anyone here on other than surface level. Or materialism. Or business that gives you excuses why you can't come why you can't get involved in church for more than a, a Sunday, a quarter. And I'm not saying we have to be here every time the church doors open. I would, I would strongly encourage you to, to, to be wise about your family's time. But each of us, and I recognize each of us, have been given a wallet of time that you need to spend wisely. But if, if you only come to church on a Sunday morning once a month, perhaps you need to evaluate your time. Perhaps you need to evaluate your job. If you're forced to work on Sundays, can I encourage you to let us know? Perhaps someone in the church knows of another job where we can be praying that God would supply with a new job that will allow you to get connected to this church family. And please don't take this as a strong chastisement or, again, send angry emails. Send them to Ryan. I recognize that there are varied reasons for, for work and the work that people do, and not all answers fit every family. I recognize that. But as elders, as, as, as men desire to serve, we, we want to help minister to you in some way. We, we want to be brought into the loop and what you deal with. We want to know how we can pray for you, how we can encourage you. But ultimately, we want as a church to be faithful to the task that James has given to us in this passage. And, and ultimately, when, when people are not faithful, when they're not here, it makes our job as elders much more difficult, much more time-consuming. But it's not just for elders. Now, this passage opens it up more than just the elders. 
It makes it difficult for the church. Is the task of spiritual correction important to you? Because it should be. James says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So we've seen the wanderer. Next is number two, the rescuer. See, the wanderer is a professed Christian. Maybe that's shocking to you, but as you will see, who is the one that does the rescuing? James says, if anyone among you, anyone among you, he's talking to all of us. Just a few verses earlier, it was the elders who were to be called when someone was unable to come to worship because of sickness, and they were called to go and pray over them. But here it isn't the elders, it isn't the church leaders that James calls on. No, he calls on you, the church. It's you. It's the people that make up the congregation. You are the ones that are to go out and rescue those that have wandered away. And there's an assumption from James that people know each other. That they actually know other people in the church. And they know when someone's not there. And they, and they go after them. They, they don't call the elders. Hey, elders, go do your job. They do it themselves. Did you know that this was your job as a Christian member of a church? This is a corporate responsibility of mutual care for one another. This isn't just the elder's responsibility. This is my responsibility as a church member. This is your responsibility. And you as a Christian member of a church have a responsibility to other members of the church. You need to look out for one another. Sin is, is, is a problem both for the corporate church and for the personal Christian. And we need to understand this as a church. Do you think this way towards your church family? Are you concerned when you haven't seen someone for a number of weeks or months or years? And the rescuer has a job. Their work will, as he says, save their soul from death. We as Christians have a way to rescue people from death. Do you believe it? God is most definitely the one who does the saving, but he chooses to use us in this task. The charge is for us to go and to get them and to turn them around, to correct them, to turn them around, literally to help them believe the gospel again. Now, it isn't saying that you have the power to pay for their sins, no, that solely belongs to Jesus Christ. But James is saying that you have the responsibility to bring them back from wandering away into death. The axe is what cuts down the tree, but we swing the axe. And what do we save them from, he says? Death. The Greek word for death is thanatos, or for you Marvel fans, thanos which means destruction, perdition, misery, implying both physical death and exclusion from the presence and favor of God. Now I realize there are churches that refuse to talk about death. There are churches that refuse to talk about hell. And so I am more than willing to be counted as odd within our culture because we're going to talk about death and we're going to talk about hell. We are not here as a church to tell you the things because you like it. You can get that from the television or movies. We're here to tell you the truth. And I would be a poor pastor if I withheld the truth from you just because I feared you wouldn't like it here or you wouldn't like me. Do you know who talked a lot about hell in the Bible? Jesus. In fact, that's what he talked about most. It's shocking in the amount of teaching that he has in the Gospels about hell. And Jesus doesn't only reference hell, he describes it in great detail. He says it's a place of eternal torment in Luke 16, 23, of an un unquenchable fire in Mark 9, 43, where the worm does not die in Mark 9, 48, where people gnash their teeth in anguish and regret in Matthew 13, 42, and from which there is no return even to, the, in, even to warn loved ones in Luke 16, 19 through 31. 
And he calls hell a place of outer darkness in Matthew 25, 30. And he compares it to, to, to a, a trash dump in Matthew 10, 28, a trash dump outside the walls of Jerusalem where rubbish was burned and, and magnets abound. You know that Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. And he describes it more vividly. Hell is God's final punishment for sins. Jesus came to rescue sinners from the wrath of God. And James is making it clear for us this morning, those that stand before God in their sins will pay for their sins naked and exposed. And if you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a brother or sister in the Lord, if, if prayer is not a mark in your life, if reading your Bible is foreign to your daily or even weekly life, then perhaps this penalty that James is talking about doesn't seem to register with you. Maybe, maybe it doesn't seem fair to you. Maybe it seems harsh or unloving. And I can understand that because I was once there too. I, I looked at things only from my point of view and I, I could always find a way to justify something. Except that we don't know ourselves well enough. You haven't studied your heart you haven't studied the holiness of God, I challenge you to, to read Isaiah 6. You need to go back a, a few weeks and listen to the message I preached. Pray that God would help you understand his holiness. Why? Because this world and your flesh will cry out to you that you can be good enough and that you're really not that bad. And that someday this world says you'll stand at the, the pearly gates next to Peter chatting it up and he'll just let you in. And it's a lie. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Heaven is real. And so is hell. And if you never understand and feel the weight of hell, the magnitude of death, the pressure of the future, then this message, like the hundreds before, will float away and you will stay the same. Friends, have you never felt the rumbling and shaking weight of your own sin? Have you never considered the impact it has on your own soul? As you sin and sin and sin, is your heart never weighed down and burdened? Is your conscience never pricked with the weight of your sin? If it doesn't, do you fear that you may ever sleep the sleep of death spiritually because the weight of all your sins rest on you and you alone and exposes you and you've never dealt with it. And can you imagine the multitude of your sins uncovered before a perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly good God? The multitude of your sins that need an answer. One of the most frightening statements in all of scripture is Romans 3.19 as Paul is making his way through indicting all of humanity. He says, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. Can you even begin to imagine what that will mean? When you're caught in something and you, you know it and you, you want to explain it away, but then when the time is done, if you're still in your sins, Paul says, you will stand before God and you will have no explanation no plea, no excuse, no case, no argument. And what does it mean when he says you'll be held accountable to God? Well, just a few chapters later, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. And not just physical death, but spiritual death. It is the forceful separating of your sinful, wretched selves from the presence of the righteous and holy God. It's not passive it's not calm. It's, it's not just closing your eyes and fading away. It's violent and sudden. And this is why the book of Revelation describes God's judgment of sin as terrible and excruciating. The seven angels are said in Revelation 16 will pour out on the earth the wrath of God towards sin and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. They will call out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And they will see Jesus 
the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and they will understand themselves and they will cower and cry out for help. And given how much Jesus talks about hell and warns us against it, I do not understand the impulse of some churches and some pastors who feel the compulsion to explain it away or even ignoring preaching about it. And I will not apologize for preaching what the Bible says, and neither should you. For us as Christians, and for me as a pastor, we don't read and believe and talk about hell because we somehow enjoy the thought of it. Far from it. And we talk about hell because we believe the Bible. And we believe it when it says that hell is real. And we believe it with tears in our eyes when it says that people whom we love are in real danger of spending eternity there. And we spend time praying and weeping and sharing with those that rejected Jesus Christ. Christian, do you find yourself apathetic about spiritual things? Consider what the Bible teaches about hell. Do you want to follow the example of Jesus in your life? Consider what the Bible teaches about hell. Do you want to ground and expand your praise in God for all that he has done for you in Christ Jesus? Consider what the Bible teaches about hell. Do you want to remind yourself of all that you've been saved from? Consider what the Bible teaches about hell. Nothing that the Bible teaches is without a point. Parents, are you praying for your children? Many, not just in the church, many in this world would say yes. What are you praying for your children? To possibly attend a good school, getting good grades, to make friends, to do well in sports, to find the right spouse? Our prayers for our children reveals a lot about our hearts and our priorities. And there are many good things to be praying for. Many good things, their physical health, their school, their, their future spouse, their job. But are those the most important things? Whatever's most important, you'll pray the most. Do you care for their spiritual well-being? Do you give the appropriate amount of time of praying for that? Every one of our children will one day face God as holy judge or holy father. What are you praying for? Just this week, in the midst of my week, I sent text messages to a group of people just asking what I can pray for. And one person in particular, a parent, wrote back a number of things, but in, in the list was praying for their kids to live godly in an ungodly world. I thought, oh, I can pray for that. The heart behind that. R.C. Sproul has said, the glory of the gospel is that the one from whom we need to be saved is the very one who saves us. Jesus came to show us mercy. And he is holy, he is just, he is good. He came to, to take our sins, to, to bear them on the cross, to pay for them, to buy us back from the slave market of sin. And then he rose from the dead on that third day to show that the Father accepted his payment for our sins. And for all those who would repent of their sins and cling to Jesus Christ, this offer is open to you. Our church is here. Our elders are here to serve, to, to give you this warning, but also we're here to give you hope and truth from the scriptures. And I would encourage you, friends, to don't wait to respond in faith. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and cling to Christ. And Christians here this morning, how can we hear this and then not go out and tell someone this week? Whether that's the small children who run around our home 
or the neighbors or coworkers or the relative that you've shared the gospel with many times. Don't lose hope. I read from a pastor this week on Twitter that he was in his 20s when the gospel was shared with him 20 times from friends and colleagues and family before he began to consider the truths of the gospel. And he said this, I didn't want Jesus, but for some reason he wanted me. What will it take for us as a church to leave this place full and free to go and share the glorious news of the gospel with those that come into our path? We believe that hell is real. And we believe it with tears and with pain, knowing that those that continue to reject the gospel are in danger of spending the rest of their eternity there. And my prayer is that we would be faithful in our task of taking the good news to those that need to hear it most. Let me end our time this morning with the parable of the prodigal son. And hopefully this ties in all of what James is saying. I was just talking about this with a few people in church and I was reading about it during our vacation are you familiar with the parable of the prodigal son? You might think that it's about the younger one who leaves, but really I believe Jesus is wanting us to see the elder brother and his response. In the parable, you have two brothers, the younger who's the wanderer and the older who should be the rescuer. But the younger brother comes back, a, a penitent sinner, and the father says, go get the robe, get the ring, kill the fatted calf. And we're told that the servants of the father were very Thrilled, they're, they're merry, they, they, they were instruments. The father didn't get the robe, no, and the ring, the fatty calf, no, the servants did. And the father lets the servants take part in this, in this correction of the returning sinner. And then as you read the parable, the father turns then to the, to the elder brother and says, my servants have welcomed him back. Won't you come and join the feast now? And if you remember in the parable, he won't come. He stays away. And the father is doing everything he can to bring the elder brother. Can't you welcome him back? Can't you share in the joy of this returned sinner? And the elder brother won't do it. Now, who is Jesus talking about in this parable? Well, he's, he's addressing people and he's addressing particularly the Pharisees who are unwilling and wrong in their thinking as Jesus eats with sinners. If you remember in the section of the gospel, Jesus tells three stories. The, the shepherd with a hundred sheep and one is lost and the woman with the lost coin, and then the lost son, the prodigal son, and the lost sheep, and the lost coin, and the lost son, and then the lost son, Jesus is saying that the Pharisees are the elder brother, and they don't like it. And then he's preaching to them that he himself, Jesus, is the true elder brother. Jesus is the true elder brother. If, if Jesus was in this parable, what would he have done? He, he wouldn't have just come to the feast at the end, no, he had gone out to the pigsty and he would have gone out to rescue the wanderer, his brother. And he would have said, the only way I can get you back into the family is at my expense. You've squandered all of the wealth that you took from the father. You've taken it and you wasted it and it has to be my robe. It has to be my ring. It has to be my fatted calf and I joyfully Give it all for you. That's why the elder brother doesn't come. And friends, when you go after that person who's wandering away, you represent the true elder brother, Jesus. You represent the good shepherd. You, you represent God in that. You, you go after that person to bring them back. And you go after them grieving. Because when you're grieving, you can't be angry. When you're filled with sorrow, wanting the person back, that's your motive. That's, that's the only way you'll get that person back. That correction is, I want them back. I'm doing everything I can, even at high cost to me, but to get them back. And we see this most clearly in the gospel. With Jesus going to the cross for us. It has been a wonderful journey in the book of James. 
He's prodded my conscience, hopefully yours too, in many areas of the Christian life. He's been asking questions like, do you lay up your treasures on earth or in heaven? Are your business methods strictly honest? Do you live in luxury or do you live sacrificially so that others can come to know Jesus? And when you sin against another person, are you willing to go to them and seek forgiveness? And when you struggle, when you suffer, where do you go first? Do you just attend church when it works for your schedule or are you committed and involved in a local church family? Does your vocal faith line up with your lifestyle? When you see a brother or sister fall into sin, do you criticize them? Or do you go seeking to restore them? There's been a lot in the book of James. Much to apply, and I pray that we won't lose sight of our Lord as we seek to be obedient to his word. And what a gift of grace is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is truly our joy and our righteousness. And my prayer is that we would leave this place this morning more in love with Jesus than we came, seeking to be obedient to his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be humble people who look to love those that have wandered away from the truth of the gospel. Father, help us to be patient. Remind us again of your patience with us. Help us to love and to care for one another here in this church. And if you give us more, Help us to care and protect for them also. Help us to, to love your gospel, to love redemption, and help us to take this good news from this place with your help for your glory alone. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.